I think when you have a crisis like the one we're having right now, it is kind of a, a unique opportunity to really think about what really matters to the core of that business and rethink it. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? This show might sound a bit different today because we're skimming from three different couches. The Skim is working from home for the time being because of COVID-19. Today, Adriana Cisneros joins us on Skimmed from the Couch. She is the CEO of Cisneros, a global enterprise focused on media, digital advertising, real estate, and social leadership. Adriana is the third generation at the helm of her family's company. She's also the president of Fundacion Cisneros, her family's nonprofit organization dedicated to improving education in Latin America. Adriana, we're very excited to have you with us today. Welcome to Skimmed from the Couch. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. So we are going to jump in like we do all episodes. You got to skim your resume for us. So uh, I grew up in Venezuela. That's where I was born and went to school. In 1998, I moved to New York. I went to Columbia undergrad, and then I went to NYU, where I studied journalism. I was in the investigative reporting program there, which was really cool. I had uh, a few jobs in the middle, mostly around journalism, including one at ABC. And then I went back to school. I went to Harvard, where I did the program for leadership development and a bunch of other finance courses. And then I started working for the family business. Soon after that, I began as head of strategy. And then as I was tapped to become CEO of the family group, I started making a move towards Miami. And I've been in Miami now for about seven years uh, as CEO. What is something that is not on your LinkedIn or, or formal professional bio that we should know about you? Let's see. Uh, I would say that probably what I spend the most time on that no one really knows about is on endurance sports. What does that mean? Uh, I, am, I am happiest with the backpack in the outdoors I love climbing very big mountains. I also like crossing countries on a bicycle, on a road bike. And I tend to do very long rides on the weekends. What does that mean? What's a very long ride? You know, 100 miles on Saturday and Sundays. Wait, how long does that take? Between four and six hours. It depends on sort of the, the route. Definitely sporty, but it has to be outdoors. So give me a pair of skins and I'm the happiest person on a mountain. That's amazing. So your grandfather started your family business in the 1920s, which has grown to a multi-billion dollar operation. I want to start off with something that may seem basic, but what does a CEO mean when the company is that big? What does your job look like on a day-to-day? So I think we're a little bit different from most family businesses that are around. In most cases, family businesses that survive beyond the third generation tend to only be in one industry and just focus on that one thing. From the time of my grandfather, when he started our business, he always thought more of his core team as the team that was leading a a holding company. And every 10 or 15 years, he would do a deep dive into a different sector, industry or geography that he thought was interesting. And that very much was something that my father continued with. And it's very much the spirit of what we do today. 
So what we're focused on right now, or in this decade, really has nothing to do with what we were doing maybe 15 or 20 years ago. But I think they saw in me an opportunity to bring a very young and fresh perspective into what we should be doing next. And just for our audience, how old were you when you were tapped to be CEO? The conversation started very quietly, only between our former CEO and my father when I was 27. And it was a conversation that took place over the course of three years, in which I really didn't think I was ready for the job or I wanted it, but I was willing to listen and to figure out what I needed to do to train to be able to make that decision. So ultimately that was a a three-year process. And that's when I went back to school and kind of honed in on a few skills that that I had to develop further. So back to your original question, what does being CEO look like for me today? I would say that the first two years, it was really about deconstructing and rebuilding. And in the previous few years, it's been more about leadership and execution. We're going to dive into what it is like to take the reins in a business that your father and grandfather really set the legacy for. But for our listeners who might not be familiar with the depths and just how huge Cisneros is, can you just skim what the company is? So the company was started by my grandfather in Venezuela uh, in the mid-20s. He was probably one of the more advanced and radical thinkers of that era and of the American continent, I would say. He was a big dreamer uh, and he was very good at executing his dreams. He came from you know, a middle-class family. His father died when he was very young. His widowed mother moved to Trinidad to live with her sister and put him in an English boarding school. And when he was 17, he went back to Venezuela to join a cousin. And... The reason I like to tell that part of the story is because he was one of the few people that spoke English. So um, they had this idea, the first buses had just arrived in the country, and they had this idea of turning the trucks into buses for people and developed a whole network of public transportation. So fast forward, you know, he ended up buying about 30 trucks that he turned into buses, and he had just enough money to buy himself and his cousin two tickets on a boat to go to New York to the World's Fair. And when they were there, they tasted Pepsi-Cola for the first time. And he really thought that Pepsi was disgusting, but truly revolutionary, and convinced Pepsi to give him the rights to bring the product to Latin America. So that was sort of the beginning of his desire to bring American goods into the region that he thought would resonate. The next adventure that he had was he started a TV network, which at the time was only the sixth private TV network in the world. Uh, So, you know, a true visionaire. And then, unfortunately, he had a stroke when he was quite young. And my father ended up taking the family business when he was only 25. And he continued on this path. He ended up being the one that brought uh, Apple computers to Latin America. He launched DirecTV in Latin America, which was truly revolutionary. He was obsessed with this idea that there were products available to bring connectivity to the region. So, you know, that's sort of the the legacy I grew up with, these very forward-thinking guys who were not afraid of thinking big. So we're going to dive into the legacy you started to create. I want to talk about you at 27. Now, I say this because Danielle and I were actually a year or a year and a half, in Danielle's case, younger than you when we started the skim. So I, I say this as like fellow youthful CEOs, <laughs> but we also had no legacy to live up to. And the skim was not established in anything bigger than our couch. 
I want to understand kind of your mental and emotional state at 27. You know, you were the youngest of your siblings and you weren't expected to necessarily take over the family business. How did that conversation begin? And where were you emotionally in, in realizing, you know, what a legacy you would have to uphold and expand into the future? You know, I am the the third one or the last one. And I think for much of my upbringing, I was kind of the, I don't want to say this in a mean way, but the forgotten one. I had very loving parents. They were great, but they really weren't focusing on, on, on what I was going to do. I had an idea. I wanted to be a journalist. And I always saw myself working around news one way or the other. My big plan was to set up a news agency to cover Latin America responsibly after I graduated from NYU J School. But that's around the time that my father had this idea of asking me to to start working at the company. We came up with a title, which was head of strategy, which was a position that we had never had at our company. So no one actually knew what I was doing. And it felt very non-threatening, I guess. They gave me access to all the meetings. And I spent, I would say, probably two years going to all the meetings that I thought were interesting or, on the contrary, that I thought were not interesting at all. Have you watched Succession? Uh, Yeah. No, that's... That's just so not the case of how we did it. We're like a very peaceful and organized family. So I wrote a paper of sort of the state of the business and the marks I thought we were missing and where I think we should be going. And that's what ended up getting me into a lot of trouble. The paper was very well received, but unfortunately they told me that if I wrote that paper, I was the one that was going to have to execute on it. And that's what kind of formalized this whole conversation around me becoming CEO When that conversation started, did you have a minute of terror or were you excited? Because there are so many things to be excited about, but at the end of the day, that's enormous responsibility. You know, I, at the beginning, I really didn't want to have that conversation and I really didn't want the job because I didn't think I was ready or that I could do it. But I've learned in time that when very smart people suggest things over and over again, sometimes even if you don't see it, you have to go for it because they're obviously seeing things from from an angle that's different from yours. And that's kind of what happened here. I had both our CEO at the time, who was brilliant, who had worked for us for you know over 30 years, and my father, who had sort of the legacy and the memory, insisting that this was a good idea and that I was the person for the job. So at one point I said, fine, even though I think it's a terrible idea, I'm willing to consider it. And we were very structured into what considering it meant. We kind of identified what were the key areas that I needed to learn more about in terms of the job and also in terms of my education. And ultimately, those were the things that got me to feel more comfortable until the day came on like year three of this secret conversation where I said, okay, I got it. I think I can do this. How did your siblings react to it? Uh, They were thrilled. You know, I think for both of them, they're very proud of, of the fact that we have been around for almost 100 years. That's a very rare accomplishment for most family businesses. Most of them dwindle between the second and the third generation. So I think they were, they were very excited about me coming on board and potentially being committed to the job, you know, at least for the next 20 years. One of the things I read is that you and your dad made a deal with each other that you would always have to pick up his phone call. Yep. So I'm living with my parents right now during during COVID. I will say Danielle and I are both very close to our families. 
I don't always, I'm going to say this softly so my parents don't hear, I don't always pick up their calls. So walk us through kind of the dynamic between you and your dad and how you're able to preserve an important personal relationship and dynamic with obviously one where, you know, I assume his guidance and experience has been instrumental. That rule still stands. I do always pick up the phone when he calls. It doesn't always mean that I'm going to talk to him. I can say, you know, I'm in the middle of doing a podcast and he understands. You know, I've been lucky. I think that my father and I have a a wonderful relationship. First and foremost, he's my super friend. We connect in a way that is very special. We get each other. I love that description. He's the first person I call when I have a really crazy idea. And he's the first person that understands the crazy idea. So first and foremost, I would describe him as a friend. Secondly, I would describe him as my father. And thirdly, I would describe him as a mentor. And what's really cool about being able to do that in three categories is that we're pretty disciplined about keeping things separate. We can have a very heated debate over a family issue or a business issue, and we don't let one thing influence the other. If we're not in agreement about something I'm working on, uh, if he comes around for dinner and we're sitting around with our kids, that energy doesn't translate into the dinner table. And I think that's really important because I don't, I don't believe in contaminating your professional and, and personal spaces with each other. So We couldn't agree more with yes. that. <laughs> when you started, you had ideas about restructuring. How did you actually take those ideas and begin to put them into place, being a brand new CEO? So I took over after a very difficult period for our, for our business group. In 1998, when Hugo Chavez, the now defunct dictator in Venezuela who took over the country, we made a decision to leave both as a family and as a business. And we moved our headquarters to Miami. The following five or six years after that were really difficult. Chavez had declared my father enemy of the state. Us owning the biggest TV network in the country was really the reason why they didn't like us, because we believe, obviously, in free enterprise and free speech. And those were two words that that didn't resonate well with the government. So we left. As a business, we spent the next six, seven, eight years on survival mode. We were trying to figure out how to deal with a huge crisis in Venezuela, where we still maintained our businesses, the constant pressure from the government. It was a very difficult time. And the number one priority for all of our senior leadership was to figure out how to survive that crisis. So when I took over, what I saw was that a company that for the first 90 years or 85 years of its history had been innovating decade after decade, had pressed pause on that because they were very busy in simply surviving. They were in triage mode. And there was a little bit of um, post-traumatic stress, I would say. So the first thing that I saw was that as a media company, who had always been on the vanguard. We were always the first ones to do things radically different and way ahead of our time. We kind of missed out on the past 10 years. And the past 10 years meant the digital revolution. So obviously, you know, being of the digital age, the first thing that I did was to really think what we needed to do with the whole digital strategy for our company. And two things came from there. One was a bit retroactive, which was, How do we use digital platforms? How do we integrate them into our existing media capabilities? So that gave birth to a lot of things that now seem super commonplace, which was to develop digital 
properties related to analog properties that you would see on television. The second part that I think was more interesting was that we saw at the time, the only video platform out there was YouTube. And we had a lot of content that we were producing being posted on YouTube, not by us or by our network here in the United States, which was Univision, but by third parties. And it was generating hundreds of thousands of views and there was no one monetizing that. So we're like, huh, there's a huge missed opportunity here. Obviously, no one has set up an agency focused on Hispanic audiences. That was the insight that gave birth into us creating what is now the largest digital advertising network in Latin America called Cisneros Interactive, through which we represent Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp. That's one of the the new verticals that now defines us as a business group. I love that story. And I have a lot of questions about how you adapt forward thinking into an org and around a core group of leaders. But I think, you know, obviously we're talking to you in the middle of all of us across the world quarantining. And a lot of companies are making very painful decisions around restructuring, around doubling down on a core part of their business. And I'm curious for those listening who are thinking about how to preserve their own business or might be an employee at a business that's also making tough decisions, How do you think about restructuring and and what would you say to them? The moment that something feels like it's extra or a little fluffy is the moment that you really have to put that in a list of things that you should get rid of. And that could be anything from teams to initiatives to physical places. And that's just a general rule. And I, I think when you have a crisis like the one we're having right now, those issues surface much quicker. And in a way... It is kind of a a unique opportunity to really think about what really matters to the core of that business and rethink it. The decisions are really hard. Um, We've seen a lot of industries having to make very radical changes, you know, like the hotel industry here in Miami, when they saw that they were going to be shut down for three months, they furloughed 100% of their employees. Fortunately, we're not in that industry. What's been interesting for us this time around is that with our ad network, Uh, We have over 30 offices in Latin America in 18 different countries. And the virus is affecting each country differently with different intensity and different timeframes as well. So we don't really have a blanket strategy of what we're doing in terms of the, the virus. We really do have to take it case by case. So that's a huge jigsaw puzzle. And we're spending a few hours on that every day. In times of change, I'm thinking... You know, obviously in times of COVID, it's so many moving parts, but also thinking about what you just spoke through when you were coming on, the restructuring that you did. How did you gain and keep the trust of your team? Yeah. So, you know, one advice that I could give any aspiring CEO is when restructuring is going to be part of your job, do it sooner rather than later. Because when it's sooner, you actually see things much more clearer and you're not attached to the past. You're not attached to legacy. You're not attached to the way things were done. When I knew I was going to be taking over as CEO, but we still hadn't made it public, we had three or four offsites that I would host at home where we would brainstorm with our, you know, our leaders of each of, each of our divisions in terms of how we saw the future. 
But I realized that what was going to be really cool was instead of having the media people discuss media and, you know, so forth, we actually just mixed everybody. We had mixed groups with different expertise trying to see what their future looked like. And that helped us really reorganize the company and, and see what was the fat that we needed to trim. What I learned in that process is that bringing very smart people together that come from different backgrounds and industries to problem solve is a really good idea. The more perspectives that you have are the better. The best ideas came from people that had nothing to do with what we were trying to solve for. And then what I also learned is that letting go of people is really hard. And it's really hard, especially if they've never done anything wrong in their job, just simply because they became redundant. Those are one of the most difficult conversations I'd had to have. And I wish I'd had more training into how to let go of people successfully because I, I do carry that weight around me still. I want to talk about future planning. So Danielle and I, over the last few years, have really tried to build that muscle. And we always like to say, you know, our team is in 2020, but like we're in 2022, 2023. And I was really proud of that. And then I read about you and it turns out you're in like 2060. You are very dedicated to thinking at minimum 50 years into the future. Most people can't fathom what's happening next week. So talk to us about what your planning cycle looks like and why that is such a, a core part of your leadership style. You know, I like to say that it's very important in our case to be able to play it short and long. By long, I mean that when you're carrying uh, on your shoulders 100 years of history and you've spent a lot of time understanding what were the, the key factors that made that possible, you realize that there's a lot to protect. So every decision, every major decision that you're making, and by major decision, I mean if you're going to launch a completely new initiative, if you're going to make a big investment into something that's completely new, if you're going to bring in a partner it's very important that you play it forward, that you try to think, how is that going to impact who we are as a business for the next 10, 15, or 20 years? And I think that's, that's been a really cool exercise because it, you know, it, it just keeps everybody very honest. When you're thinking that far in advance, you're projecting what the outcome of the decisions can be. And it kind of keeps you from, from making bad decisions or working with bad people or partnering with bad companies. And it also gives you the ability to make better financial decisions that are probably not, perhaps not risky, but that are going to keep you afloat when things get complicated. And that's definitely proven to be the case during the few recessions that we've had in our lifetime. Having said that, we also are very good at playing it very short. We, as a business group, were known for making decisions, very big decisions, very quickly to move on opportunities very quickly, to execute very quickly. You know, but I'm sure if I wasn't running a, a very old family business and I was just doing a job that I thought I was going to be doing for five or 10 years, uh, I don't think I would be as obsessed as what the next 50 years might look like. The short part is really interesting because I think as leaders of a growing startup, we would love to be able to say that we make decisions quickly and enact things quickly, but I don't know that we always do. And I think that that is a theme that we hear a lot from growing companies. What do you think it is that has allowed you to set up a team to evaluate and make those decisions quickly? So that's, a, that's an excellent question. My grandfather believed that he didn't want his core team to be specialists. He wanted them to be generalists. And so he believed in having a team of 10, 15, 20 executives 
that were very well-rounded that could be given the task to run any of our new businesses until the new teams of specialists were set up. You know, a group of 20 executives that stayed with the company for a very long time were groomed in that way. So they were great leaders. They were very good at organizing and deploying without having to be specialists in different industries. And that's something that's very much in the DNA of our company. And it's very much the spirit of, uh, of how we do things. And my core team is like that. We are all generalists. None of us are excellent at anything, but we're very good at a lot of things. And I think that allows us to be, on the one hand, very quick studies. On the other hand, to not be biased towards ideas one way or the other. And United, we can, we're bringing such different perspectives that we can, you know, we can decide if something is good or bad rather quickly. Then the next step is saying, okay, we're not the experts. Now we really need to bring in the best experts that we can to run and execute on a new venture. There is a the phrase that people say all the time, you know, lead by example. And I think that's, you know, something easily thrown around, but I'm really curious what that means to you. And especially in the context of the enormous influence that this company has in Latin America, where there's a lot of volatile political situations that come up. There is a lot of corruption that you guys have had to navigate as the business has expanded. And especially as you've taken over What does leading by example mean in your day-to-day? And what does leading by example mean when you think about Cisneros' role in the world? Fundamentally, in our DNA, we believe in doing good. And we do think that doing good is really good for business as well. Every time that we come up with a, a really bold idea of a new business that can change a country or a continent or a region... There's a part of our brain that's thinking, how can we use this new initiative, the energy around the new initiative, to create something that will also be beneficial for society as a whole? So I'll give you an example. When we launched DirecTV in Latin America, that was in the early 90s, we realized what the power of connectivity through TV was going to be, and we wondered how that could be used for educational purposes. This was at a time in Latin America when they had just started putting televisions inside classrooms with educational programming. And we said, wow, wouldn't it be interesting if we launch a pan-regional educational channel in Spanish that can be part of the school system during the day, but could be a family channel in the afternoons and in the evenings so that parents could learn together with their teachers. That channel was called Clase. It was a huge success. One of the programs that we had on there was called English Highway, which was sort of how to learn English. And to this day, I meet people at a random conference that tell me the reason we learned English was because we used to watch English Highway. So, you know, these initiatives were massive. This meant that we had to work with the Ministry of Education of every country to understand what the curriculum was, to understand what the technology was available, to understand how we would be able to get the signal of this TV channel in there, what training the teachers needed and so forth. We just do that because we think it's it's the right thing to do and we have an opportunity to contribute positively to the development of our society. It's the backbone uh, of who we are. It's in our DNA. And, and going back to your question about bribery and politics and all of that, it goes back to this perspective of playing it very long. You know, if, if you're going to be around for the next 20 years, you have to be a good citizen and you have to treat your neighbors with transparency. So obviously going down a path that is not honest and transparent wouldn't be sustainable for a business that's trying to be around for so much longer. So it's just, it's very clear for us. Talking about the long game, when you think about 
50 years from now, when people are looking back and talking about you as a CEO, I think it's very clear the elements that you've brought into your leadership from your father and your grandfather. What do you think are the things that are distinctly or uniquely traits of your leadership style? I, and I think that this is probably something that resonates with a lot of people of our generation. And I have a feeling it's probably the way that you guys run this game as well is I believe in a much flatter and leaner organization than the one that I took over. It was probably a combination of, first of all, being so young. And second of all, trying to figure out how I was going to be the CEO for people that were 20 years older than me who had been at the job for so much longer. Building an organization that is much flatter and that is much more transparent in terms of the open conversations that we have with all our team ended up being a really good idea for us. So we're going to switch now to our most difficult segment, the lightning round. (laughs) The work from home edition. Okay. Are you ready? Are you a morning person or a night owl? Both, which means that my days are very, very long. (laughs) (laughs) Now that we're all working from home, what's replaced your morning commute? Having longer breakfasts with my family, which has been a really nice thing. Can you skim your nighttime routine for us? A lot of things have changed with this whole home thing. I used to either bike ride very early in the morning or very late in the evening. And now, since the days seem to be so long, I'm trying to exercise like midday to just break it up. uh, And that's actually been really helpful. So the afternoons have changed. The afternoon is now the time that I actually get to be physically with my kids uh, instead of us all doing e-learning or Zoom conference calls. I try to be their coach uh, and do an hour of exercise with them. I feel like you're an intense coach. I, I would I would fail as your child. Uh, we always have dinner as a family. We have very strict, obviously, no electronics at the table rule. And our dinners last an hour, you know, which is nice. Even in... Even in non-COVID times, do you try to have dinner as a family? Yes, always. Uh, Unless, you know, we have something for work. But if we're home, we all have dinner. And then after that, you know, we try to, we put the kids to bed. But it's sort of, it's becoming a very wholesome schedule now that we're all home. We have so much more time to do things that should be normal. What's the last show that you binge watched? Oh, I hate to admit this, but it was Tiger King. Oh, same. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I don't, I don't know why I'm trying to understand I mean, I know why. I can't what, look away. What, what about me is it that made me not want to look away? In, in times of COVID, since we're all home a lot more, do you have a uh, favorite quick dinner that you've been making? You know, there's days that I'm really happy to spend a couple of hours cooking because I find it kind of therapeutic. So I'll do something more elaborate. I'll roast something. Uh, And there are days that the idea of spending two hours in the kitchen is the last thing I want to do because I just want to be outside and and do something else. So about once a week, I'll do like a lot of pasta sauces, bolognese and so forth, and we freeze them. So my quick one is to just, you know, do some pasta with frozen homemade sauce. Um, Adriana, this has been great. Thank you so much for, for making the time during a very crazy, crazy time in our world. Stay safe and healthy. And um, thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much. Bye, guys. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.